Welcome to the Haskell Cast, episode 13. I'm Chris Forno, and with me is Alp Mistanagulari. Hello. Our guest today is John Wigley. John is the maintainer of Emacs. He was a member of the C++ committee for 15 years, the author of Git from the Bottom Up, uh, the author and maintainer of Ledger, which has inspired a lot of ports, including a Haskell port. And he's active in the Haskell community and on the Haskell IRC channel. Welcome, John. Oh, thank you. I can't have you uh, on and not go straight into Haskell and Emacs. <laughs> so I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to all the uh, VI or other editor uh, listeners right now, but um, you've been using Emacs for for how many years now? I started in 1989, so what is that, 28 years? And you've also been programming Haskell for quite a while as well, right? Uh, Just five years. And in that time, how often have you been tweaking your setup and config to get it working in the uh, most optimal way? In the early days, quite a bit. But then I reached a sort of a sweet spot where Haskell mode circa 2014 was working really well for me and they changed it in some ways that I needed to update my config to handle and I got ran out of time to do it and so I finally just settled on making what I had work really well and I've I've stayed with it so it has been tweak free for about two years now and is there anything aside from Haskell mode that you find uh, to be very useful for productivity or or indispensable or just a a tip that maybe people haven't heard about or should check out? Probably the most productive thing in my Emacs configuration has to do with linking Haskell Emacs and Nix. Nix has the ability to build a Google database for any packages that you've installed. And I have some code to link me to that database with just a single key press. It'll pop up in the browser window, whatever keyword I happen to currently be on and I'm searching for, because I'm constantly in the haddocks, just all the time. So I might, I maybe do 100, 200 Google queries over the course of a few hours, and it's all local. It works with me wherever I am in, on the airplane. And it's the, it's the triumvirate of these three that makes it really powerful. Yeah, so I, I saw you give... Uh talk about that recently and maybe we could go into detail more about that because it, it it was a very interesting concept of kind of bringing along the state of the world with you when you build a Haskell program. Um, maybe you can give more of an introduction to somebody who may not be familiar with uh, Nix and with uh, Emacs maybe necessarily and how, how all this works together. The Nix is a functional package manager that like Git, it maintains a database of immutable objects that represent all the various build products from having built the things that you've installed, the open source projects that you've installed. And as you install new things, it just adds to this database and it keeps tracking a current version of what you currently have installed in a history that allows you to roll back, go to some previous point in time, it's very, very uh, useful way to manage multiple projects on your machine because it also deduplicates any binary dependencies they might have in common. You get the effect of sandboxing for free on any pat- 
any project that you're building with Nix. Where Haskell comes into this is that Nix has especially good support for building Haskell projects. So all of the packages that are on Hackage have been represented in Nix as install targets. Multiple versions sometimes for several Hackage packages. And not only can you build the package from Hackage, you can also ask Nix to do additional things. For example, building it with profiling or building it and building the Hoogle database that might come with it. You can also, per Haskell project, say, I don't want any tests to run or I don't want any haddocks generated or ignore whatever constraints the author of the package put on this to build and just try building it with whatever's current on Hackage. All of this is very easily managed from your personal configuration file. Where Emacs comes into play in this is that once you've got all of this stuff installed into your global environment or to maybe some custom environments that you might build, uh, I go into this in some detail in my other talk, you can start Emacs within a shell that's inside that environment and it suddenly has visibility to all these different dependencies that your Haskell project might, might need. And from within that, you can ask Google questions and you'll get a, you'll get a local database. Uh, I mean, a query from your local database. Haskell developers depend upon a lot of external resources, such as the Haddix, Hoogle, Hackage. And since the beginning, I've always wanted ways to be completely disconnected because my workflow is that I'm remote. I work from home all the time. I don't like to stay in home every day, so I go to a cafe. I can never depend on the wireless that's there. So I need to be able to do my development without pause wherever I am, even if there's no internet. And I've researched many different ways of mirroring pretty much every single external resource that exists. So I also have a hackage mirror and I have, a, I have other complete mirrors of resources that are on the web. But I'm finding that Nix is taking away my need to manage that type of thing myself. I can just tell Nix, I'm interested in this, 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 this. I'm going to be working with those today. Install for me everything that I need. And the way Nix behaves is that if I have not asked it to garbage collect anything, it's not going anywhere. It's going to stay on my machine until my disk is full. So I usually have not just what I'm working on now, but what I have worked on for the last month, depending on how long it's been since I garbage collected. Yeah, that brings up an interesting um, topic, which is sort of long-term, long-horizon software development. You know, you recently took over maintainership of Emacs, and that is a project that is what I, I looked it up. I think it's 32 years old at least at this point, at least the GNU version. The source code, the source control in Git goes back to 85. And I think the project itself is the mid seventies. And so these, these projects that, that span effectively span generations of developers, um, I imagine it's different than the projects you write for your PhD thesis or, you know, to, you know, get some job done and that the development looks a lot different and it looks a lot less focused on, you know, doing the coolest thing you can right now in the fewest lines of code versus uh, something that's understandable to a larger group of people and that can be maintained for a longer period of time. And one thing mm -hmm. specifically that I find interesting about this, especially in the context of Haskell, is these ever-moving dependencies, these ever-changing environment that you're working in. Um, so I haven't really given you a good question yet. I've just been <laughs> expounding on this myself. But uh, what do you find that you need to do to keep 
for example, a Haskell project that you were working on five years ago, still compiling and that you can still add features to it today? You have to stay on top of it. You have to keep building it month after month and just see what breaks. It's There's really no silver bullet to to have a project that you wrote two years ago just work out of the gate today. As part of that, I imagine you have packages that you need to build with, with different sets of dependencies. Is that is that correct? Like maybe different versions of, of a different library. Um, That's correct, And you yes. kind of alluded to how to do that with Nix. Could you go into a little bit more detail on that? Uh, say you have something, you need GAC 7.10, for example, or I, I don't know if that's possible. So, Right. You can you can build environments tuned to different versions of the compiler. And a particular Haskell project can state specific version dependencies it has on something. And the way Nix works is that the thing installed in your environment links to whatever dependencies it needs to by a unique identifier that would be different from the other versions of that dependency. That might the library name might be the same on a global non-NIC system, but in a NIC system, it's going to have its own name with its own checksum embedded into the name of the directory where the file resides. So it's quite possible and even easy to have two running binaries that need completely different versions of all their dependencies. So in general, I really don't think about that problem so much. I just state whatever it is that I need. In fact, today I installed HPack because I wanted to start using that for building my Cabal files from a YAML file. And I wanted to install HPAC Convert, and HPAC Convert didn't like the latest version of ISON. So all I did was I went into my Nix config file, and I said, you know what, use this version of ASON instead. It was a one-liner. Um, I wanted to go back to a point you said about long-lived software. One of the reasons why the Emacs project is able to succeed for this length of time is one of the reasons why Haskell has been succeeding, and GHC in particular. What GHC and Emacs have in common is that the project might be large, the feature set might be large, but that feature set rests upon a kernel that's small. So in the Emacs universe, we have our Emacs Lisp engine and then a set of core C primitives around it. We keep that code fairly tightly controlled and not changing so much so that people can go hog wild with all the Emacs Lisp that they want to write. And that's where all the crazy new ideas are constantly changing and constantly evolving. But as long as it's Elisp and the core is not changing very fast, nothing breaks. And so GHC has this too with Haskell compiling down to a GHC core language where the core language is something very, very small, light, and compact that is very close to system FC. And as long as that does not change, then the Haskell universe around it, all you have to do when you add a new feature is say, well, what does it mean in core? What does it mean to render that to core? And then it will just work. It'll just work with all the other optimization pipelines that are inside the GHC compiler. I was wondering, as uh, the person who now maintains Emacs and uh, is therefore in charge of making sure things don't break, uh, how, how often do you regret uh, not having stronger types? Uh, I mean, the usual, uh, the usual benefits that we get from uh, our languages when you work on Emacs. I do miss types in Emacs Lisp. I don't work on the C side of Emacs. We should clarify that nowadays I'm the co-maintainer of Emacs. We asked Eli Zaretsky to step up and be a maintainer, and he is the one who does the coding work. I more work on a project management level, working with the people involved, trying to make people happy. 
Um, I don't do so much coding, except I still do quite a bit of Elisp coding when it's when it's necessary. Um, but in terms of day-to-day -day maintenance of Emacs and making sure that things don't break, Ellie would be the one you would want, want to ask that question of. Is there any more high-level functionality that you make use of um, for, I wouldn't say automated refactoring, but anything above the level of information that's displayed, something that actually helps you change the code? No, no, it's, it's surprisingly not <laughs> that IDE like my use of Emacs for Haskell. Uh, nor is mine. I just. Uh... <laughs> I wish it were. I keep looking with with interest at these new projects coming up that that promise these different things. But for now, no. It's like editing C twenty years ago. It just doesn't give me a whole lot of automated information. Do you find do you want that, or do you just not really feel a need for it? Haven't had much of a need. The thing I think I do the most in terms of getting feedback from my editor is I put an underbar in to get a hole. And I just look at the error that results to show me what should have gone in that hole. I'm doing that constantly. But other than that, I never ask it to fill in. Like, I'm sure that there's, I think even I have the functionality for it to take a type and give me the case statement that would automatically be uh, fully analyzed that type. But I don't use it. Uh, just to go into that a little bit more for people who are interested, are you talking about partial type signatures? Or are you talking about something, some other type of uh, of, of holes that uh, the compiler uses? I'm talking about the typed holes. So you, wherever you could put a value term, you can put an underbar, and you'll get an error from GHC that will say, I found a hole here that has this type, but there's basically nothing to fill the hole. So you need to provide something. And holes can sometimes... A tricky way to use holes is that if you have a if you have a value you put in and it's giving you a type error because it's not the right type, if you put a hole in the position of a function and then put the thing that's giving you the error in parentheses, so basically it looks like you're passing that entire object to the hole as a function, the type of the hole will be the conversion that would be needed for that value to be appropriate. And a lot of times that it's not, it's not that I wanted a function there. I just wanted to know that. I wanted to know what did I have and what did you want? And that use of the hole in that way ends up giving me all that information. Okay. So uh, how, wh what are you working on these days, John? Anything exciting? Actually, it's interesting you should ask. A um, lot, of, lot of good stuff. I work for a research company, which is quite different from the commercial work I did for the large section of my career before now. And at that company, BAE Systems, government contractor here in the US, we use Haskell a lot uh, for all of our tooling and a lot of our prototyping. And my particular group does a lot of functional programming. So we prefer to use Haskell. We also use Coq quite a bit. And one of the projects that I'm working on now, we have a need to write basically circuit descriptions that given certain properties for the different circuits, we want to use a solver to assemble the various available components into a circuit optimized for a certain constraint, say latency or power or whatnot. And I was thinking about different ways to encode this because I want to write it in a high-level way, have complete analyzability, but still be able to render this in a format which will not be Haskell. It'll be a description for something to execute on an FPGA, for example. 
And at first I thought about using free arrows because there were a few articles about these recently where free arrows are, you use arrow no notation to write your program and because you're using free arrows, you will end up with a concrete representation of your program as a value. And then you write an interpreter over this in order to render it into different contexts. But because they're arrows, in the arrow notation, you have sort of these, this result computation input broken up into three parts. And you can't analyze the input or the output, but you can analyze the computation. And that would have allowed me to go through all the computations I'd composed together and say, well, how much is the additive latency of all the components involved? But then I started talking to Connell Elliott because I ran into him at Target the other day when we were uh, first for a South, Has South Bay Haskell meetup. And he told me about this work he's doing with category theory where he takes a Haskell function and he basically compiles it to a categorical term. So this is a term that only uses the language of categories, identity, composition, products, coproducts, but nothing else. Whatever can fit in the vocabulary of a bicartesian closed category. And this categorical term is represented internally as a polymorphic function over any category. So you end up with this fully generic categorical term that has a, now has a meaning by definition in every category that is by, by Cartesian close, which means that it supports functions, high order functions, it supports uh, products and sums. And then you take this term and all you have to do is add a type annotation that says, mm, show me what this looks like in this category. And he's using this because he can define circuitry as a category or graphs as a category or linear maps as a category because he wants to execute code on the GPU. And by going through this route, you basically get a way to write an evaluator for every possible target language at once. Ordinarily, when you're doing program abstractions, as I might have done with the free arrow, you're taking your Haskell program, you're writing in some special syntax so that you can end up with a deeply embedded DSL term, which is handy. There's a lot you can do with it. But you have to write an evaluator for every destination. And these evaluators have to know both sides. They have to know the structure of the DSL term, and they have to know about the domain that you're evaluating to, which means if there are any kind of soundness proofs you want to do about the correctness of the, of the translation and the semantic fidelity of the result you'll get in the target domain, you have to do the proofs every time. Each evaluator that you write, you have to prove correct. So the categorical abstraction has the benefit that Getting Haskell stuff into an abstract categorical term can be done with a plugin, fully automated. There's one function that you call called CCC to lift these Haskell functions into these categorical terms. Now, by the laws of category theory, anything that is a category has a representation for this term. I've just gotten an entire universe of evaluators without ever having to connect the two domains. So would you say that you have one interpreter uh and then you can plug your own ID and composition operator and maybe products and whatnot. And then you get, you get a, a backend, so to speak. Yes, you have to define what it means for your target domain to be a category. And you define this by giving a set of instances, one for category, one for Cartesian, one for closed, et cetera, et cetera. And then Haskell does the work of rendering that term into that category. And because it's rendering it, if the target is also Haskell, because you might be going to, say, a Kleisley category back in Haskell because you want to add in like statefulness, 
you, you started with a pure function, you want to end up with a stateful computation that's going to keep track of some detail as the computation runs. Because this is just going out to Haskell, the code gets put through the GHC optimizer too. And this is all happening at compile time. You're getting all the benefits of abstracting your term to a DSL and doing your an analysis and evaluation, but you're not doing it at runtime anymore. You're doing it at compile time, and you're getting the GHC optimizer involved in some cases at compile time so that the result is a program in the target domain. That sounds quite, quite interesting. So you, you're talking about, uh, so let me take a quick uh, digression here. You're talking about uh, categories, and I've, I've read somewhere that you initially were not all that interested in math. No, no, actually for the first 40 years of my life, I had no interest in math. I hated math. I was sort of afraid of math. So uh, to all our uh, uh, listeners out there who uh, feel the same, uh, would you have anything to say, any motivation maybe to uh, get closer to math? Not, not necessarily study category theory and whatnot, but just uh, get to know mathematics under a better light. I would say the math you hate is not the math that's there to be found. Well said. Uh, I studied math, so I'm biased here. Uh, <laughs> well, now, I, now I can't get enough of it. Now I, what's keeping me up every night this week is reading category theory texts on how to encode different constructions as abstract terms. Because now category theory for me is a compiler construction toolkit. Any, any rewriting I can do on these terms or any theorems that I can apply are tools that I can use to do rewriting and optimization. So it's taken this purely abstract thing that, e that even though I liked it before, I had some difficulty getting intuitions for it because every book you read about it wants to tell you about all kinds of different categories. And, oh, here's a construction and here's what it looks like in sets and posits and lambda calculus and basically all these different categories, expecting that you'll go back up to the abstract term. But this is showing me a practical use for these fully abstract terms, because when you're working on these abstract terms, when you're thinking in these abstract terms, you're thinking universally. You're thinking about constructions that automatically and of necessity have a meaning in all categories that have the capabilities of the category you're thinking of. That's incredibly exciting. It's almost like everything I'm learning has the power, is, is a power times a thousand, because I don't have to write evaluators to say what these things mean. Category theory is the evaluator. It provides the transfer of meaning. So, and just to me to be clear on how applicable uh, this encoding uh, can be, could you give us an example of, uh, besides uh, just circuits, of the kind of target categories that you, you may want to, uh, to have support for? Uh, well, so one, one category that I wrote myself just to sort of get my feet wet and play with this idea was the category where I simply represent the categorical term using a Haskell DSL. So rather than this fully abstract thing that will use type class resolution to uh, render itself into the target, I just let the term reify itself into a data type, into a value. Now I have the ability to do the same type of introspection on the term at the value level that I might have had by using a free encoding of a DSL to walk over a term in some custom written program. That, for me, is just a way to let me get my hands on the thing and, and sort of play with it directly and see what it's constructed like. And in the DSL, do you have uh, a way to ensure uh, the category theory laws? Or 
could you have two terms that are equivalent, well, equal uh, from the mathematical point of view, but there are two distinct terms of your DSL? So for the Haskell development of this, which Connell has done, and it's fully uh, described in a paper he's written called Compiling to Categories. If you go to his homepage, it's the first link on his homepage. The Haskell version of this is not going to let you check the laws. Um, what I wanted to do, since this seemed like such a powerful idea to me, and I wanted to use it for modeling other things, I took Connell's idea and I'm implementing it in Coq. And in Coq, the same idea applies. I get the same benefits, the same magic. Coq has type classes as well. So there, too, I can make these generic terms over any, any category as a type class term, type class referential term, and then it will render it through instance lookup. And in that context, I get all the laws. I get all the checking. So as I explore this idea and find out different things that I can do, and like I said, when I'm getting excited about these theorems I read in the books, I do them on the Coq side. And then I come back to the Haskell side as sort of the practical tool that I could use today to do these things. I think there may be a way to merge them because Coq and Haskell are both categories and category theory is giving me this abstract bridge between domains. So I should be, if, if this is the idea I think it is, I should have a way to play in one and go to the other and back and forth. So how do you use uh, Coq? You mentioned that you use it at your work now. Yes. Um, the last time I looked at it, it was uh, I saw a lot of interesting theoretical applications, but uh, aside from maybe program proving, I wasn't really sure. Um, could you expand on what you're using it for? Sure. Uh, I'm in the the main project I'm doing at work right now, which is separate from the one that initiated all this research into category theory. We want to synthesize programs from specifications. So a specification should be very high level. It should be at the level of denotational semantics, where you're using mathematical objects to talk about what is the meaning of a program. Forget about memory, forget about constraints, forget about time. Think in pure infinite terms, what does a thing really mean? And to answer what it really means, you find mathematical objects that you can associate with your functions that basically build up a description, a mathematical picture of what your program is. Now that sounds kind of difficult and abstract, but it's a lot easier than, than you think, because you don't have to use a mathematical object. You don't have to use mathematical sets. For example, you could just use lists. You could just use data structures. The idea here is to pick the simplest structures that can encode the meaning of your program. And when you see a program written at this level, the general reaction will be, this is going to perform terribly. This is, gonna, this, is, this is great for an academic course, but this isn't going to be real world code. I can't write a web server this way. So we want a system where you can write a program in this super high level, super simple form, and we can render it down to an optimal implementation, which will beat or exceed hand tuning, a hand coded artifact. So we write this in Coq because Coq is a great language for specifying mathematical relations. It is not such a great language for doing dependently typed programming. There are a lot of facilities that you would want do it for doing dependently typed programming that for example, Agda gives you with its very handy pattern matching capabilities. Coq doesn't really give you so many of these. It has very nice tactic support, but in terms of just doing lots of functional, computational, dependently type programming, it's not the language I would recommend. But if you're doing mathematical, relational, propositional type stuff in Coq, where proofs are going to get involved, it excels there. It's beautiful. It, it does extremely well in this domain. 
So th there's a system developed by MIT to marry these two. Uh, it, it is a system for taking a mathematical relation and rendering it through a process of stepwise refinement to a computable function, where that stepwise refinement can be highly automated, almost to the point that you can jump the whole step without any programmer involvement. And this is the system we're using at work and that I have, I've been using for the last year and a half. And I have a paper submitted to Haskell Symposium this year with my co-author, Ben Delaware, where we take the byte string library and we put it through this system. And we show that I can get a byte string library that, to, that is packaged as a Haskell library. So this would be something you could get off of, uh, off of Hackage, not now, in, in the future. The specification right now is about 10 lines long because byte strings are just lists. So all I have to do is say that every byte string operation is just the equivalent of a list operation. It's, it's almost stupid looking, the, the specification. You would think that it can't result in anything. But through this period of stepwise, this process of stepwise refinement, I play a lot of the same tricks that the byte string library is playing, where I use a heap. So I specified what it means for a heap, what a heap means. And I specified what it means to implement a byte string in terms of a heap. But still, this is all just happening relationally. I'm not writing code to actually do the work yet. And then finally, I compile it down to a computable function, which I render into Haskell. And that Haskell function is as fast or faster in some cases than the byte string, the code that's in the current byte string implementation. Because we get to play the same tricks. I play those tricks during the refinement process. But when I play them, I have to honor the semantics of my original specification. So those 10 lines of code that specify that a byte string is like a list becomes a hard requirement on everything that I do from that moment forward. And I can't do anything that makes my result be not just like the semantics of a list. I think systems like this, although they're kind of cumbersome and heavyweight today, that's just because this is, this is new research, this is a newly developing system. I think this might be where the future goes because these specifications, they're really easy to write. The, the heap specification that I wrote was just in one night. If I wanted to write a an allocator sufficient to replace Leibniz malloc, I would have had to spend a lot more time uh, getting that right, making that performant. But if I'm just focused on writing the specification, that's not that hard. And in my case, because I'm targeting a Haskell program, I'm not actually going to write the heap. I just need to connect my specification of the heap with Haskell's heap in the GHC runtime. So to go back to the byte string example, um, so do you give your tool uh, different uh, different types of representations? Like, do you let it know that it can't it can use some array or a list or or something to store the bytes or? Yes, during the process of refinement, at each refinement step, you have the option of changing the representation type, which will then incur the proof burden for every method that this change in representation type and the code that you're writing to use this new representation honors the previous representation. And uh, maybe a sneakier question, but can you model the foreign function interface as well? Yes, so that's where we kind of... Um, that's where I think the more some of the more interesting bits of the paper come into play. We we did something tricky there because in Coq you can always pull it, you can always reference an external function using an axiom. 
you can say there's a function that exists and I don't know what its definition is and I don't know what its semantics are, but it just exists. And that will make it callable from Cox's point of view because you're not actually executing the Cox code. The Cox code never turns into an exe that you run on your system. In order to run the Cox program, you extract it to Haskell. And at the time you do the extraction, you say what the function you axiomatized, what it corresponds to, for example, in the okay. GAC runtime. And when I first did the byte string um, refinements, I just refined to an axiomatized set of functions. But this was really unsatisfying because it meant that at every single place where I used an axiomatized function, I'm incurring a, a chance of error. I'm, I might be calling the wrong function because the only type, the only checking cock can do is that the type matches, but it doesn't know the meaning of the function. So if two functions have the same type but different meanings, I have no way of being sure that I called the right one. So what we did to, to make this problem have a smaller surface area is that when I refine byte strings in terms of heaps, I then abstract the program over heaps so that I end up with this, this giant DSL term in the free DSL where every place in the code where I used a heap, it becomes a stub, a call. And this call has a reference to the axiomatized um, not to the axiomatized function, sorry. It has a reference to the method on the heap a abstract data type that I'm using. So these calls would be malloc, free, poke, peak, such like that. So if you can imagine, it's a program tree where all the uses of the heap have been called out in the tree. Then I have to write, I have to render this into a function. So I use a denotation function that finds every one of these called out method uses and replaces it with the axiomatized function so that the end result is, a, is an actual function I can extract to Haskell. It's the denotation function where things can go wrong, but the denotation function is very, very small, and it's one-to-one. -one. It's a bijective mapping between the method on the ADT and the axiomatized function I want to call in GHC. So malloc associates with malloc, free associates with free, and you can eyeball it very easily to see that you're making the same calls. As long as you get that denotation right, and as long as there aren't bugs in Cox Haskell extractor, I have a high degree of um, certainty that the extracted term, the extracted function is going to be correct in Haskell. Well, that sounds very interesting. I'm looking forward to the, the paper and the talk. So, John, you've worked with a, a pretty broad variety of languages from C++ to Lisp to Haskell to Cox some work with Agda, and I'm sure other languages in between, Python and, and, and what have you. Um, you've, it sounds like you've chosen Haskell as your sort of go-to general purpose language. Is that correct? Yes. Um, I, I'm, I'm assuming that, I, I mean, that makes every, us and everyone else listening probably happy to hear. Um, and we've made a sort of similar evaluation um, but you're looking towards the future of where things can go. What can Haskell bring that you miss from those other languages or that are just uh, fundamentally good ideas uh, for the future of the next you know, post-Haskell language? Well, you've been referencing the IDE element. Java provides an amazing experience in that regard. Uh, and that was a language I programmed in Professionally, so I came to very much appreciate what the IDE could do for me in that environment. Um, as far as what other languages offer, 
as the community grows and the amount of documentation and information grows, we're naturally going to get some of the other benefits you get from, say, writing something in Python, which is just the caliber of the documentation across the board, the accessibility of books at various, various levels, finding nearly any question you want to ask answered online. Those types of things are a big part of the language experience, even if they're not of the language per se. But other, other than that, Haskell does such a good job. I'm not, there are languages that I used in the past for pleasure and languages that I used for work. They were not often the same language, even though I often, I tried to make them the same because it's nice to just stay in one environment and hone your skills in one area. So my professional language was fairly stable at C for the longest time, but also was at one point C sharp and at another time Java. My pleasure language kept evolving. It was always Emacs Lisp in the background, but I needed something also for general utility. And Emacs Lisp is not the best for that. And I went through Perl, Python, Ruby. And when I came to Haskell, I discovered a language that was not only effective in a commercial grade level, but it was so much fun that it became my hobby language. And that was when I realized I have to change my career. I, I can't be working in something else because I'm always going to be thinking about when can I get home and work on my Haskell programs. It just makes me happy to program in Haskell. Sometimes I'm not even that concerned about what it is you want me to write in Haskell. If I can use Haskell to do it, you've already gotten me halfway to liking what I'm doing, no matter what the task happens to be. And for a language to have that degree of impact, that's saying something. Because I remember sitting down sometimes with friends and us dreaming up our ideal language because nothing was making us completely happy. For a time, I thought it was Common Lisp. I was all over Common Lisp. But the, the commercial aspect, the getting a, pro, getting a deliverable that the cu all customers would want just wasn't really there. But in Haskell, I can have it all. I can make something that my customer want. I can deliver an executable to my customer. I can build... Um, playthings for other developers to, to hack around with. I can do completely theoretical, insane stuff all in one environment. And that really shows not so much, I would say, the versatility of Haskell, but the versatility of the Lambda calculus that Haskell sits on top of. And I sort of went through this process of peeling the onion, so to speak. At first, I was in love with Haskell, but then I went a layer. I went a little layer down, and I found this core language and this this lambda calculus that the core is representing. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, the fact that all the other stuff can be encoded by this!" And then I went further down and realized, "Wow, that was originally invented as a way to encode mathematics." And then I started realizing, "Haskell's math. You're just you're just using it on a computer." And when that sort of clicked for me, then I don't care what the future language is going to be because Everything and anything that comes from the kernel of math will, in the end, be the same thing that I loved about Haskell. Um, now, Haskell has made some choices that I particularly like that are somewhat controversial and other languages aren't adopting, like laziness. I very, very much like laziness for the way it makes programs easily compositional. Um, and I don't know if things like that are going to survive because other languages that are hot and sexy right now, for example, Idris, have made the other choice. They've, they've chosen to go with not with strict because they want to build device drivers and do other things like that. They have a different research thrust. So I am hoping that wherever we go next, 
keep some of the things I loved most about Haskell like laziness. But even if they don't, it's all going to be a category, right? So <laughs> there's going to be there's going to be stuff in it that will be very exciting. Okay. Uh, so you worked on professionally, that is, on compilers uh, in your career, right? Yes, for a very long time. So uh, were you engineering the entire compiler or working on some uh, narrow uh, parts? I always worked on the front end, professionally. So it was presumably in C or C++ that you were writing it? Yes. In C. <laughs> so could you compare for us the experience of writing a, a compiler or a compiler-ish Uh, project uh, in C versus Haskell. <laughs> I wouldn't want to go back to writing C. <laughs> I don't know if that's a sufficient answer, though. Um, I mean, compilers and parsing in particular have always been a particular interest of mine uh, for a long time, and I was I was a happy working on compilers because it was an intellectually challenging problem. I found a lot to be interested in. It's it, it attracts a community of like-minded people that were easy to talk to, but writing a compiler in C was a never-ending experience of tracking down the sorts of bugs you shouldn't need to have to track down. I want to track down problems in my grammar. I don't want to track down problems in my linked list implementation because I forgot to manage a pointer. Uh, The, the framework, the machinery, the scaffolding ends up taking away a huge amount of your attention. And where Has the Haskell experience is better is that, and, and this is a little bit of a hurdle for people to get over in the beginning if they're first coming to Haskell. Haskell wants your mind to divide between the semantics of, your op of what you're writing and the operation of that thing at runtime. So it's, it's separating representation from execution. So you're writing your program and your program, even if it looks like it's monadic, as they say, or having effects or executing things on the system, it's not. The program is a description of something that will execute at runtime, uh, will be executed by the runtime. But when you're coding in C and you're working on a compiler, it's all mashed together. The semantics of your compilation environment and your execution environment are all merged. So you're having to think like the machine all the time. You can't separate the meaning of what you're doing from how it's going to be represented in the machine's memory and executed by the processor. And because of that, I found myself always tripping over my own shoelaces. Whereas with Haskell, if I'm working on a parser in Haskell, because I have the types guiding me and because I have this separation that Haskell inculcates, most of the times the bugs I'm finding are bugs in the meaning of my program. I'm parsing incorrectly, not I'm using the parser incorrectly. So in order to prevent all kinds of problems, I'm sure you, you had an extensive test suite, I assume. Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yes. Many. With probably uh, uh, programs that were reported by uh, users which have triggered all kinds of uh, yep. uh, officials. Our yeah. bug database had thousands of bugs in it. The test suite to do a full run of it took about 45 minutes. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of tests and examples, but still. Okay, <clears throat> you've mentioned GitLib. Uh, so how come you, you started working on a complete uh, uh, API for Git in Haskell? Uh, that, that might sound a bit crazy when, uh, <laughs> when you think about it. 
Well, that has a history. When I was working with the Boost libraries, Boost was using Subversion. And they wanted to move to Git, but they were unwilling to lose all the history that they had in Subversion. And every conversion attempt had pretty much not, not succeeded. I was very much in favor of using Git at the time, and I wanted to make this be practical for them. So I wrote a program in C++ using libgit2 to parse an SVN dump file that represents all of the commits in the entire history from every branch and to replay those into a Git repository. Because this is about 1.2 million Git objects and it's a nut, the IO alone kills you on a task like this. So I had to do all of my work on a RAM disk just to have this be less than a half hour per every iteration that I was testing. Well, of course, this is a C++ program. Why not do it in Haskell, right? So as I went to go do it in Haskell, that's why I needed libgit2, hence C2HSC was born. And then I thought, well, this is Haskell. We want types. We want better abstractions. So GitLib was really my experience trying to write a Haskell library that was making the libgit2 functionality accessible in a more Haskell natural way. Uh, it then ended up being used as the backend for the FP complete IDE because whenever you worked on code in that IDE, it would get stored into S3 as Git objects. And GitLib was doing the work of creating these Git objects and writing them directly to S3 so that no actual Git repository like you're familiar with is, was involved. And was this your first uh, serious Haskell uh, project? It was my first serious Haskell project. It wasn't the very first thing that I did. The very first, I, I don't know if you know this, but I failed learning Haskell three times. I tried at different points in the past. I think 2009 might have been my first attempt. And there were certain concepts in Haskell I just couldn't get my head around. Maybe it was because I had no mathematical background. I don't even have a CS background. There are many things I still learn about today that are just common knowledge to people who had an undergraduate program in CS. I studied philosophy myself. And I just couldn't fathom some of these things that were in Haskell. And I wrote a tool to try and help me learn Haskell at the time. It's called UNA for Universal Unarchiver. It's on Hackage. I still use it all the time. I use it just today, in fact. And even though I wrote that, I still didn't quite understand what was going on. <laughs> in fact, when I started learning Haskell again, it was funny. I, I read that code. I was using stuff in that code that I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I saw in the code I was using the fix function. I had to look it up. I didn't know what fix did. I didn't even understand it after reading the documentation. And yet at some point I'd I'd used it. So that showed you that I might have had I might have been able to use it, but I didn't understand it well enough. And I think that's why I failed at the first few attempts. But the third time was was kind of when it really clicked for me. And that's when everything caught fire. And so it was it was working on GitLib that I started at that same month. And that was about five years ago. That was 2012, yes. So because we usually do a road, your road to Haskell kind of thing, but we kind of bypassed it and entered straight into Emacs land uh, this time. I had a very similar experience the first time I tried it. Just it looked so fascinating, but could not make sense of it. And interestingly, that was my first couple experiences with Emacs as well. 
<laughs> they do have some things in common on that on that score. I'll, I'll admit. So I don't know why, but personally, I I just smashed my head against the wall until uh, things start click clicking in, and uh, I didn't do it in several times. I just went like two or three years being completely puzzled uh, all the time, and uh, after a while, it gets better. And yes, better, it does better. get better. Gets way more interesting and exciting. But then you talk to a few people, uh, you take a look at a paper, and then you're puzzled again. So it's it's fresh. <laughs> well, talking about uh, things that uh, puzzled me. So uh, I know John, you from IRC and maybe blog posts or something. Uh, I know that you have uh, there's an approach that you like that relies on uh, instead of defining recursive data types, you will use the the fix uh, uh, type and you tend to, uh, I looked at HNIX, so your uh, NIX parser uh, and maybe evaluator soon. Uh, and usually use F algebras uh, in your, in your, many of your projects. So could you maybe uh, explain the design pattern, if we can call it that? Uh, yes. So these are um, called recursion schemes, if you were going to Google for it. And I was in London in 2013, and I heard a talk by Tim Williams about how they were using recursion schemes at the bank he worked at. And I think I just found it a particularly fascinating idea because he described all the benefits they gained from doing it. One of the benefits, the one that you gain most quickly, is that your evaluators can be non-recursive. And it's very it's a lot easier to write an evaluator when you don't have to think about recursion. So when you declare your F algebra, every single constructor, if it's going to allow recursive structure, references this little type variable that you put at the end of the type, the, the name of the type. So I usually call it R for the recursor. So every constructor has this R. And when you're building up terms that are recursive, this R becomes where the rest of the tree lives. So if you were to print it out, you see all this structure repeating in your recursor positions. But when you're evaluating, that R is the result of the evaluation of that subtree. So in your evaluator, instead of having to reference the subtree and call eval to get what the result of the evaluation is, it's already been done for you. And you can simply refer to it as a variable. So I found that to be very handy, even though there is some boilerplate involved in getting the recursion scheme set up. Um, the other thing that recursion schemes let you do easily that is, is, some, is some power that you're getting is that because this recursor is a variable, it doesn't have to just be the recursive type of your, of your algebra. You can include annotations. So if you say that my data type is going to be fix, compose, you know, the, the, the tuple functor with some bit of data that you want, and then your F algebra, now all of a sudden you have a syntax tree that has this extra bit of data at every single node throughout the tree. And you got that very, very simply and easily. This could be used, for example, for annotating uh, some uh, AST that you passed with source locations and things like that, right? Exactly. And that's how we do intent. We have annotated trees in the HNIX project already. Uh, is, is it possible with this approach to combine, say you have an evaluator for 
some types of operations, say multiplication, and you have an evaluator that knows about addition. Uh, how is it easy to define an evaluator that can handle both? There are ways of doing that um, because when you're talking about F-algebras, so now you're just dealing with functors, it's very easy to deal with products of functors. So you can have, you can start building up combinations of trees and have the recursion, the, the recursive elements are also the products. There has been research done and there are uh, several articles about this out on the web on co using cofree to represent evaluators. So free takes your f-algebra and turns it into a grammar. Cofree takes your evaluator and can give you sets of evaluators. So you, you mentioned HNICs, and I assume it's not just to have the parser written in Haskell. It sounds like you've had some uh, goals in mind that uh, take HNICs beyond where it is right now. Can you share any of that? I would like, since Nix is a pure functional language itself, although it is untyped, it always seemed odd to me that the system that parses your Nix files and does the operations would be in C++. If it were in Haskell, if it were also functional, it would seem there would be a much more natural correspondence between the two. I would like you to be able to do things in the future such as writing your Nix expressions as a, as a Haskell file, for example, that uses quasi-quoting to directly embed other Nix expressions or somehow be able to blend the two so that you can rely upon the full power of Haskell in writing your expression. Right now, you have to rely upon the facilities given to you by the Nix language, which they're sufficient. But if you already know Haskell, if you already have a whole bunch of tools for doing certain kinds of things in Haskell, why not be able to just write it in Haskell? And that was sort of how, where HNICs came from. Other people have joined the project and now have a larger uh, goal of, wouldn't it be nice to just have a completely separate implementation of NICs? I don't know whether all parts of NICs can become Haskell because that increases the dependency of the core footprint. There may be a kernel that still needs to be in C. But the Nix user experience, the, the, the tools that manage the store, the tools that parse the expressions, the tools that construct the derivations, the tools that interact with the build, with that do the actual execution. It would be nice if this was all in Haskell, and it would also be nice if we could enrich the Nix language, because now that it's in Haskell, now that I think a lot of other hackers could get involved, we could do things like add optional typing to the Nix language or find some other representations, make, make the, uh, the representations different across the different ways you could express a Nix expression. So my, my desire is to give people a better toolbox. Whereas right now, I think the C++ nature makes it kind of opaque. Not too many people who get into Nix dive straight into the C++ code. Do you think we're in any danger, uh, if that happens, of ending up with more complicated package descriptions and network descriptions and whatever else you're describing with Nix. Whereas you mentioned Nix is a fairly simple language right now that doesn't take a lot of study to get into, which may be part of its appeal. Yes. Yes, that's very possible. And it would be up to the Nix packages maintainers to reject 
pull requests for things they found too complicated. Uh, where I would want this complexity would be, say, a project at work, where I want to build the project with Nix and I want to have it be super customized for whether we're building it under Docker or building it on somebody's Linux machine or my Mac machine. I, there are times when I just want total freedom and I want to be able to think in Haskell. But that's not necessarily going to be the kind of expression I would want to pass upstream. What about generating Nix expressions, which is kind of uh, a, a bit strange to do last I looked at it. It's a, or in fact, entirely unsupported in terms of being able to generate an expression at sort of evaluation time. Of Nix. Right, right. Yes. Yeah, so, so a friend of mine, Shay Levy, has actually done work on a project called Nix in Nix, where it lets you do this recursive evaluation to give you a kind of meta, meta, meta Nix programming. That would be something I would like to have. Alp is smiling because I think we were with Shay at the time he was building that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were up to them. Right. I was just I was just with Shay four days ago. Ah, cool. Well, thank you, John, for coming on and talking with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. You've been listening to the Haskell Cast, episode thirteen, recorded on. April 12th, 2017. For notes and links from the show, visit www.haskellcast.com.